And now if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning, the words are also printed on the screen. This is John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had finished washing their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning and open God's word and look at what he has in store for us together. Uh, when I was contacted by the mission committee, I was told that the theme for this year's Mission Sunday is discerning God's call on your life. I mean, how do you know where is he calling you to serve? What are you called to do? I mean, Stephen Green called to work in Memphis, Tennessee, or Ricky Crager in Oaxaca, Mexico. That's great for them, but where are you supposed to move to? Are you supposed to move? Who are you supposed to be serving? And by what means, for how long, what will it cost, what is the call on your life? Wouldn't it be great if we could answer those questions with specificity this morning? Well, I can't answer the specifics of those questions, but I can certainly help you see from the text that's just been read what is the undercurrent of that call on your life and mine. Because while there are significant differences between how the Lord is calling me to serve and how he's calling you to serve specifically, the undercurrent of the call on my life and the call on your life is really the same. That's the part that I'd like us to see this morning. We're going to look at four categories highlighted in this passage. We're going to look at the pattern that the Lord Jesus sets. Secondly, the principle that grows out of that pattern. Third, we're going to look at the problem, and the problem's a big one. 
And then fourth, we're going to look at the power that overcomes the problem. So the pattern, the principle, the problem, and the power. The pattern is pretty straightforward. We read the text, Jesus does something that to us may not seem all that significant. In his world, it was a dramatic thing that he did, that he washed his disciples' feet. And after doing so, here's the pattern, verse 15, he says, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And the pattern then comes with a promise in verse 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, let's pause for a second and look at the backstory to what's happening here. To get to the backstory, you have to turn back to Luke chapter 22, where you discover that Jesus anticipated this evening and this special dinner. This was going to be the, the Last Supper. He knew this was his last time to do with his disciples what he had been doing regularly with them in different contexts for the previous three years. And so he sent his two most trusted disciples, Peter and John, to go and make arrangements for this Last Supper. And he said, take care of it. Make sure you've got everything covered. And what's interesting is in Luke 22, when you read the account of them being instructed and carrying out the instructions, the word prepare shows up four different times. It's almost as if Jesus is hammering, get it all done, cover all the details, make sure you, make sure that you deal with everything that needs to happen for this dinner to come off right. And what you realize reading John 13 is that they made a glaring omission. They covered everything except finding and hiring someone to do that job that no one really would ever be interested in doing. That, that is washing the feet of the people at the table. Now, you and I might not get the, the cringe factor of this passage because when they sat down no, when they laid down, because at that, in that culture, you would lie down at a low table on your left side and you'd feed yourself with your hands with your right hand, and the feet would be splayed out to the outward. And feet were kind of an offensive thing at that time because of how they traveled in that culture. And when they realized that, man, the food's already being served, the wine is poured, and our mouths are watering, but ain't nobody taking care of this need, suddenly... They're cringing and they're all pretending that they're not noticing that Peter and John dropped the ball and somebody should step in and take care of this, but nobody is going to do that. Now, putting it into our context, I was talking with Emily about what might help you see some of the cringeworthiness of this. Imagine that there's this really great wedding being planned and it's been planned for over a year and you've invited a thousand of your closest friends. You're at this fantastic venue. It's got a great dance floor. John Currents is catering the meal. It's going to be phenomenal. And you get there and the food is there and you're ready to, oh my gosh, there's no band. No one hired a band. And so there's this awkward kind of quiet murmuring because you realize Nobody thought of this. How are we going to dance without a band? How are we going to enjoy the cell without music? That's a dim picture of the cringe factor that was going on here. 
And so in the middle of that swirl of everybody looking around but pretending not to notice and realize what's going on, it's almost in slow motion, probably without a word, it's the honored guest at that meal who finally pulls himself up to his feet, takes off his outer robe that marked him out as the honored guest, the rabbi, the teacher and leader of this group, and he grabs a towel, finds a basin, puts water in it, wraps himself up in that towel, and begins doing the unthinkable, what none of his disciples was willing to do for him, let alone for one another. And he begins to get on his hands and knees and goes from one disciple to the other and washes their feet. What, what even a, a, a menial slave would have to be paid to do in that culture. Think about this, what's really happening. You remember that at the beginning, Jesus, the creator, created man out of the dust of the earth and now he's the only one in the room willing to wash the dust off the feet of his creation. That's, that's the pattern. From that, secondly, he articulates the principle. And the principle is easily misunderstood. You find that in that John three times uses the word understand. Jesus says in verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Same as in verse 12. Do you understand what I've done to you? Jesus not only sets this example and shows this pattern, he wants them to get it. The argument here is Jesus knows this is going to be lost on us very easily. This is one of those things that we're easily going to sidestep and say, no, 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 this, this doesn't apply to me. <laughs> this is not my story. This is not my practice. And so Jesus makes the principle really clear because he knows that you and I are going to struggle with this. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The principle very clearly is this. Jesus, the guest of honor, sets aside the position to which he's rightly entitled, and he takes the responsibility of serving as the host, the one who serves. Here's the principle for us today. Ready? If you belong to Christ, you're not a guest in this world. You're a host. Let me unpack that. If you belong to Christ, pause for a second. What that means is if you are his by virtue of what we celebrate at Good Friday and Easter, that on the cross Jesus became my sin and yours, and God treated Jesus the way you and I deserve to be treated so that on Easter 
when Jesus was raised from the dead, God vindicated and proved that not only was Jesus' substitutionary atonement, his role in my place and yours, satisfactory for forgiveness to come to us, but also he took Jesus' perfect record of righteousness, declared it to be ours, and says, now you belong. You're not just forgiven as a forgiven stranger on your own, but you're brought near and treated with the same righteous and perfect status that Jesus rightly deserved and earned in our place. So if you belong to Christ by virtue of what he did in our place, that great exchange, if you belong to Christ, then in this world, you're not a guest. You're a host. And that frankly changes everything. That's the principle behind this passage. It's the undercurrent of the call that's been placed on every one of our lives, whether you serve in Memphis or in Oaxaca or Romania or Jackson or Oxford or wherever the Lord sends you, the undercurrent is this. You're not a guest in this world. You're a host. Your calling is to serve. And much of the time, it's going to take real sacrifice. It's going to feel awkward. It'll be costly. And you're frankly not going to want to serve the way you're being a host will require you to. That's what takes us to the third word, the third P. There's the problem. The problem is that significant gap between the ought to and the want to. I mean, Jesus said it, didn't he? He said it in um, verse 14. He says it, uh, for I have, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have a problem whenever the Bible says you ought to do something or you ought to be something because most of the time I kind of don't want to. Or even if I do want to and say, yeah, I really ought to do this, I most often don't have the ability to carry it out. Isn't that what Paul talks about in Romans 6? For I have this desire to do what is good, but I don't have the ability. I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. Matter of fact, the good I want to do, I don't end up doing. No, the evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Do you sense the problem? You're not a guest in this world. You're calling. The undercurrent of your calling is to be a host, but you're not going to want to be that because oftentimes it's going to be messy. And the things you most want, the things that you feel like you've earned or are entitled to, you're going to have to give that up in order to be the kind of host to which you've been called. And that's going to cost you, isn't it? And you feel it. Because so little of what we've been called to just comes naturally, right? It's, it's a battle. And so what do we do with this? I mean, think about it. What do you do when, <laughs> I don't know, you go to the restaurant and the waitress is slow because she's got too many tables, right? 
And she's taken a really long time even to put water in your empty glass. And then when she finally gives you the menu, she's really long coming back to say, well, what can I get for you? And when she finally writes down what you're ordering, and after all, you're at a nice restaurant, it's going to cost you. She's really slow in getting the food back to you. And once the food arrives, you realize she got it wrong. What's your first thought? There goes your gratuity, right? That's what you would think if you were here to be a guest in the world. Really, our culture shapes us to think like guests wherever we go. We think like we're a guest, right? At a restaurant, you go to a hotel, hey, how can I serve you? Oh, we've made your room up. You've got, we've got everything ready. You take your car to the dealership to get it serviced, and right away, what's wrong and how can we make it right? You go to the doctor's office, and the receptionist says, would you fill out these forms and take a seat, and we'll, cut, we'll get to you. We'll take care of whatever you need. You go to the dentist's office. You go to the campus, and they're going to say, how can we serve you? How can we get you the education that you're paying for? Everything about our culture shapes us to think like guests. But back to the restaurant, there you are. Your food is wrong. She takes the wrong meal away, and an indescribably long time goes by, and then she finally brings you the right food, and now it's cold. And you think, oh, for crying out loud. Because why? Because you're a guest, right? But what if at that moment this passage comes back to mind? You remember, oh, yeah, I'm not here to be a guest. I'm, I'm a host, even here. I belong to Christ And my calling is to be a host. And so you stuff down that irritation you feel, and you look at your server who's frazzled, and you smile at her, and you say, man, your plate is full today, isn't it? And you got way more tables than you should be taking care of all by yourself. I'm sorry. I know that's a lot. Hey, we're about to pray and thank God for our food. Is there anything we can pray for you about? And suddenly you've shifted from being a guest to being a host, as you've been called. little parenthesis here. <laughs> I said this in the earlier service. If you're going to pray before you eat at a restaurant, don't you ever leave an average gratuity. Don't you ever shortchange the person who's watching you pray because you're praying to the God who was immeasurably generous to you when you deserved it, not at all. And you're praying him and thanking him for all his bounty to you. What kind of gratuity should you leave for the one who serves you and is watching? End of parenthesis. That, that doesn't cost any extra. But please think about that when you go eat at a restaurant. Don't pray before you eat if you're going to tip cheaply. Am I overstating it? (laughs) Back to where we were. You're not a guest in this world. You're a host. And that changes everything. It really, really does. The problem is you're not going to want to. So there's an alternative. The alternative is pictured for us less than 24 hours after Jesus took this basin 
and wash the feet of his disciples doing something that no one wanted to do? Less than 24 hours later, another man had a basin brought to him. His name was Pilate, and he was holding court. Jesus was on trial for his life, and the religious leaders were demanding the legal right to execute Jesus. And Pilate, several times, interrogates Jesus, even brings him inside away from the crowd, which is now boiling with anger, demanding his execution. And he says, what have you done? Jesus is silent. And Pilate comes back out and says, look, I can find no basis for this charge. He doesn't deserve to be executed. And the religious leader says, if you don't execute him, you're no friend of Caesar. You're a traitor. Pilate now panics because he realizes, I could do the right thing, set him free, but that's going to cost me. So you know what he did, right? He had a basin with water brought, and he washed his hands and saying, I find no guilt in this man. His blood be on you. I wash my hands of him. You see it suddenly clear, isn't it? There's two basins before you every time you engage with people. You either take the basin and towel that Jesus used and say, I'm not a guest in this world. I'm a host. I'm here to serve. How can I serve the people around me? How can I serve this person right now, even when it's going to cost me? Or you take the other basin and you say, too costly. I wash my hands of this. Someone else is going to have to take responsibility for this. There's no third basin, right? You're either going to get it and you realize you're a host. You're here to serve. Now, I can look in all of your faces. Some of you have worked hard for where you are. Some of you have reached a station in life where you really do command the respect of the people around you. You didn't get that easily. And wherever you walk, people know who you are, and they say, let me serve you. What can I do to help you? Because I want to ingratiate myself to you. Or you, you, you're worth the support. You are worthy. <laughs> and yet every one of us who belongs to Christ is not here to be a guest. We're here to be hosts, to serve, however the Holy Spirit makes it plain. That's the undercurrent of your call and mine. If you belong to Christ, you're a host. And the Holy Spirit will make it plain how he's calling you to serve at that moment. All you got to do is ask. The Holy Spirit who dwells within you, he said, Spirit, how do you want me to serve here? You'll often be surprised at the answer. Most of the time, it's going to cost you. At bare minimum, it will be what my kids often said, awkward, <laughs> right? It's going to put you in awkward places. Sometimes it's going to put you in painful places where you're really going to lose. It's going to cost you to serve in the way you're called. But if it costs Jesus to be the host who served even to the point of giving up his life? Why would we think it would cost us any less to be a host? Right? 
So that brings us to the problem. If you've seen the gap between the ought to and the want to, or even the desire and the ability, then where's the power come from to do this, to live in this way? Well, to answer that question, this is our fourth P word, power, you have to look at what enabled Jesus to do what he did, the unthinkable. And you see that in verse 3 of chapter 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the table and did what he did. Jesus knew three things. He was unmistakably certain about three things. One, he knew what his identity was, he knew what his destiny was, and he knew what his authority was. And knowing those three empowered him to do what none of the rest of us would have done, what none of his disciples was willing to do. Uh, he knew his, his, his identity. Uh, the, the verse, uh, verse 3 says, he knew that he had come from God, meaning not just that's where I originated, but 1 John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus knew who he was. He was the king, the creator the originator of it all. He was clear on that. Secondly, he knew his destiny. He knew that he was going back to God. Our, our confession of faith came from Philippians 2, which ends with, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Jesus knew that before he went to the cross. He knew it before he washed his disciples' feet. If, if he knew what his destiny was, he was free to humble himself and serve as a host. The third thing he knew was his authority, that God had placed all things, given all things into his hands. He knew that no one was forcing him into anything. He was fully in charge. That's what empowered Jesus to do what he did, not just going to the cross, but also going to his knees to wash his disciples' feet. Now, if that's what empowered Jesus and we in union with him are faced with these challenges where the ought to and the want to are often so far apart, what empowers us? Same thing, really. In union with Christ, all that is his is ours. So his identity has become our identity. His destiny becomes our destiny. His authority becomes our authority. And you have to have that clear if you're going to shift from being a guest, demanding to be treated as a guest, to humbling yourself to be a host. You have to be clear on your identity, your destiny, and your authority. Your identity, you're a new creation in Christ. You're his you belong. That's who you are. Your destiny, you are destined for the throne. Uh, Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. You will share the rule of all the new heavens and the new earth with the king. We will reign with him. That's what the Bible says. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, 
The Apostle John says, Beloved, now we are children of God. There's the identity. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But here's your destiny. We know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. What does that even mean? We shall be like him, the one before whom the angels fall on their faces right now. We'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's your destiny. And you will reign with the one whom you'll be like. And your authority, <laughs> just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And here it is. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. The one to whom all authority belongs is promised. He won't ever drop you. He won't ever fumble you. He won't ever leave you. It might feel like he has, but he is with you, and his authority is now your authority. You see, once that's clear in your mind that his identity is yours, his destiny is yours, his authority is yours, you don't have to hang on to what's mine and what I'm entitled to with white knuckle grip anymore. You don't have to demand to be treated like the guest you ought to be treated like, right? You suddenly have a new power to unclench your white knuckle grip and say, I don't have to be a guest here. I don't have to be respected. I don't have to be catered to. I don't have to be honored. I can just humbly serve. And not just be okay with that, but delight in that because that's who Jesus was and still is. Do you realize Jesus didn't stop serving when he ascended into heaven? He's still serving. I mean, right now he's at the right hand of his Father praying for you and praying for me. And he's still serving, meaning, have you ever, has it ever dawned on you that every time the Bible calls you to something, that you look at and you say, nah, there's no way I could do that. I mean, yeah, Les Newsom, he can do that. Brian Sorgenfry, he can, Bill Boyd, Bill can do that. But, and no way I can do that. I'm off the hook. You just wash your hands using the other basin. Because God can't ask me to do something he knows I can't do, right? But every time the Bible calls you to something hard, and every time you feel the presence of the Spirit saying, you need to serve this person, he says, no way. Every time the Bible calls you to something to which you say, impossible, you're actually faced with a new opportunity to ask Jesus to serve you. And to say, Lord Jesus, you're still serving me. This to me feels impossible. Would you please serve me? not by submitting your will to mine, but by empowering me to do what on my own, there's no way I can do. Would you please serve me to give me a love for this person that I really don't naturally love? Would you serve me to keep my mouth shut right now so that I don't open my mouth and really hurt people 
because of what I'm thinking right now? Would you serve me by making me patient to sit and watch and be curious when I feel like i got to stand up and fix something? Would you please help me to do what's impossible? Jesus still takes such pleasure in serving his kids. Whenever we say, Lord Jesus, help. So the impossible places where you find yourself are actually opportunities to live out your missionary calling because the undercurrent of your call in mine is to be a host and stop living like a guest that's entitled to be treated a certain way and to say, Lord Jesus, it's my great pleasure to serve. Would you serve me in this impossible place so that I can honor you with the grace, the kindness, and the joy that you alone provide. Is it a little clearer now what your missionary calling is? The details, they'll take care of themselves. You work on this one, the rest will be resolved. Start looking for places where you can give up demanding to be treated as a guest and start looking for the places to live as a host. I see a lot of you dads and husbands. I just have to add this because my wife will be upset with me if I don't. Let me talk about myself. This is, this is not in my notes. <laughs> One of my expectations when I work hard, and I come home, especially when the kids were little, I wanted to be treated like a guest. So I've, I've, I've worked hard, and I'm, I'm home. This is my place. Y'all, stop making the noise. Make sure there's a good dinner on the table, and make it easy for me to go, <sighs> and there was this unspoken thing that dad wants to be treated like a guest in his home, right? Is that, am I making that up, or is that kind of a more familiar thing? What if when you walked up the drive from where you parked your car or leaned your bike, you said, Holy Spirit, I'm going to walk into this, the most important place where I'll spend my time, where I get to shape the experience of people I love more than anybody else. Would you please unclench my grasp from that demand to be treated like a guest, someone to be honored and respected and cared for? Would you give me grace to be a host as I walk into my door? Let me look into the eyes of the people I love most and say, what's it feel like to be you today? What do you need? How can I serve you? How can I come alongside and make you say, oh, I'm so glad Dad's home? It's your missionary call on the people who will matter to you most for all eternity to love them toward Jesus as you serve as a host in their lives and give up on being demanded to be treated as a guest. That's going to take a miracle, don't you think? Let's pray for that miracle. Would you join me? Father in heaven, by your spirit, would you perform that miracle in each of our lives? Make us men and women, even boys and girls, students, who are willing to give up our entitlements, our demand to be treated 
as people who deserve, who have a right, who, who are so accustomed to be treated as guests and ignoring the needs of the people around us. Make us willing to live like hosts, even as our elder brother, Lord Jesus himself, served as a host to us and serves even now and waits to receive us at the very end at the wedding supper of the Lamb as he spreads wide his arms and hosts us for all eternity and says, welcome home. Let us live our lives so that many are welcomed in because of our willingness to live as hosts. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.